0: Love it. open your Bibles with me to Luke, or to Luke, yeah, to John chapter 1. And I want us to stand together and read again these first 18 verses of the prologue of John and set our hearts and our minds to really explore the wonder of these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made has made him known. Wow. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this text is one of those texts that for us can become so familiar. We've heard it, some of us, many times. We've read it on our own. Lord, we've studied it. And so we almost think that we have it mastered and we have it understood and Father, we can't really be amazed and astonished afresh and anew anymore by what it teaches. And yet, that's exactly our desperate need today. That, Lord, our hearts that perhaps have been encrusted by a variety of things, that, Lord God, you would remove those layers of, I don't know, resistance to amazement. And that, Father God, you would make us to be freshly in awe ...of Christ and of His work. Lord God, of Your definite work in our redemption and in our salvation. Lord God, of the great grace and truth that we have received in Christ... ...that we can find nowhere else. Lord, I pray that to that end, You would grant to me to be filled with Your Spirit... ...so that I'll preach Your Word faithfully and accurately this morning. So that, Lord, I'll preach it in a way that will engage the hearts and the minds of your people, that will arrest the attention of those who are not in Christ, that, Lord God, you would move in such a way and by the power of your Holy Spirit in our midst that you would bring this word to bear in our hearts individually and collectively in a powerful way. Lord, you would not allow us to, to, to wander in our thinking, that you would not allow us, Lord God, to just, you know... Assume that we've heard it all before and so not give diligent thought and reflection and meditation to this truth but Lord God that you would unfold this part of John's prologue in a powerful way Lord God and it would, we, we would be filled with awe. We'd be filled with wonder and Lord, we would be filled with worship at all that you have done on our behalf. That we would see with clarity that it's only because of your immense grace that we would even recognize Christ at all. The difference between we who are saved in a world that is lost in darkness is not our brilliance and it's not our wisdom and it's not our character and it is not our merit or our righteousness. It is entirely because of your great grace to regenerate hard, deadened hearts, open blinded eyes and unstopped deafened ears. Our salvation is not attributable to ourselves in the least. It is entirely a gift of the living God. And so we have nothing in which to boast except to boast in Christ. Help us, Lord God, to become a people this morning who boast in Christ alone. Fill me with your spirit. Let me speak your word faithfully. Father, teach and engage this congregation and bring our minds and our hearts to the very throne of God and reveal to us your truth in a powerful way, I pray. Move in our midst for the praise of your glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You be seated.
1: You know, not long
0: ago, beloved, I was reading this article. It was actually very interesting. And it was talking about the loss of amazement and the loss of imagination among the young people in our nation and it was talking about how you know it used to be when you were a little kid you could come up with fanciful things and you could be amazed at a variety of different things like back when i was little which was a very long time ago right and and but but back before the advent of cgi in the advent of deep fakes in the advent of you know um you know not like the the old nintendo you know stuff but like the modern day game consoles in which it looks as if you're watching a movie and you are a part of it. Back before those things that we had a much greater ability to be amazed, a much greater ability to be astonished, a much greater ability to be overwhelmed with something, and that we're losing it. That when you look at our kids, and specifically this study was done in the ages between 7 and 10, that children have lost the ability to be amazed. And I think about how that's affected us. You know, I especially was thinking about it after last week. You know, last week when we were looking at this this um, description in scripture of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember last week we were taken by John into the eternal, you know, timeless glories of of that 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 time before time right when when we were considering the description of the lord jesus christ from an eternal perspective when we were looking at the eternal truth of the second member of the trinity right when we beheld christ as the eternal word of god who from the beginning no matter where you want to place that, that that from 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 the beginning of time he was always continuing he never came into existence That he's always been. And that not only that, but that from before the beginning, before the ages, before the foundation of this world was laid, before there were any angelic beings, the Word was face to face with Father God. And together the Father and the Word enjoyed the most intimate of relationships. This intimate communion and communication and fellowship, the most intimate relationship possible. That they beheld one another. That they were, they were locked in this relationship of infinite love and infinite pleasure and unimaginable blessing and unimaginable joy. They were of one heart and of one mind together and they lacked nothing. They lacked nothing. And that face to face communion, that wondrous satisfaction in the Godhead is only possible because the Word was and is God, right? And then we talked about the evidence of, and the, the 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 wonder of, and the glory of the Pactum Salutis, right? This this inner Trinitarian covenant, this inner Trinitarian agreement, the eternal covenant of redemption between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that that we see in Scripture presented most often, primarily in terms of the promises of the Father to the Son, and the obligation of the Son. To the Father and how in, how in the eternal councils of the Trinity, the triune God covenanted together in a plan that involved the salvation of all who would belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, that the Father chose a certain number of the human race for salvation and gave them to His Son as their guardian and as their savior. As their redeemer and mediator. And we saw the pledge of the Holy Spirit to bring them all to Christ. To receive all the benefits of salvation. And the attending promise that in accomplishing the eternal salvation of his people. The Son, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ would be exalted with the name that is above every other name. Right? It's that covenant. It is that covenant that required the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? It's that covenant that demanded Christ take on flesh or the covenant would not be fulfilled and we would never be redeemed. You remember we talked about the statement from Sinclair Ferguson and Derek Thomas that he who in the beginning was face-to-face with God has come in order to be face-to-face with us So that we may live face to face with them. With him. And the pactum salutis is what defines and explains the why of creation, right? That Christ is creator, that he's sustainer, and that he's the final goal of it all. Now, if you walked away last week unamazed, I don't know what to tell you. If you walked away last week like, huh, that's cool, I guess. Who's playing at 1 o'clock? If that was you, I mean this, in all sincerity, you need to check yourself, man. And now this morning, in this text that we're looking at today, we move from, you know, viewing the identity, the glorious identity of the Lord Jesus Christ from the eternal perspective, and now we turn to his mission in this world. And John's intention for us is that we would see the stupendous nature of what Christ has done for sinners like us. And so he's going to describe to us now How how the the wonder of redemption in Christ works in time. And he's going to show to us this, the Lord's, he's going to describe for us the Lord's forerunner, his witness. The man we know as John the Baptist, right? He's going to talk to us about the collective response of blinded humanity to Christ's divine light. And the way that the light of Christ, praise God, overcomes our natural sinful darkness. That Christ has come, that the light of the world has come, it demands a herald, right? It demands somebody to proclaim it, and we find that herald in John the witness. Look at John the Apostle. John writes in verses six through nine again. He says, "There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness." To bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. I want us to see the Apostle John brings us from the heights and the glories of heaven, right? From eternity and from the glorious contemplation of the eternal word who is with God and who is God to the realm of time, right? Into the earth to observable history, right? The word of eternity steps down into the human experience. And his forerunner, John, the witness, is there to herald the event. John the witness, or as we know him, John the Baptist, I think is one of the great characters in Scripture. He's one of my favorites. John, you know, is, is the one of whom it was written, in the prophecies of Isaiah, as Luke tells us, He's the one of whom it was written, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. It was on the day of his birth. When his own father, Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, prophesied his unique mission. Saying, and you, child, you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God. Whereby... The sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now, here's the thing I want us to see about John the Baptist or John the witness. First thing I want us to see is this, is that John's purpose or his life mission, his calling, it was ordained from eternity. That's what the Apostle John is telling us here. When he says that he was sent by God, what he's saying is, John, this John the witness, this man who came... And who basically had no other life except to proclaim the glories of Christ. He was specifically and sovereignly chosen for just that task. He lived for one reason, John did. He existed for one object. To point to the Lord Jesus Christ. To bear witness to the word made flesh. The light that was coming into the world. So that people might believe through his testimony. Now here's what I want us to see. I want us to get this. Because it is something that I think is painfully missing from the modern American church. Beloved, John was not the story here. Christ is. Do you see that? He's not the hero of the story. Christ is. John's life, whatever he did, his ministry, his actions, his speech, had significance only And that he was appointed the witness of the glory of the coming Christ. That's it. In other words, here's what I'm gonna say to you. John the Baptist, John was not, in worldly terms, considered a great man. He wasn't. He wasn't a great man in worldly terms. He wasn't rich. He wasn't universally acclaimed. He didn't accomplish anything of worldly value. He wasn't prestigious. He was not accomplished in the eyes of society. In fact, most of the successful people of the world viewed John's life as insignificant. And yet, the Word made flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ, said of him, Truly I say to you, among those born of women... There has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. That's because John understood his role as a witness. It was not to point to himself. It was not to point to his ministry or elevate himself. It was not to gain followers for himself. He sent his disciples away to follow Christ. It wasn't about him. And what a welcome contrast John is to the so-called prophets of our day who are continually courting fame in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and filling up their social media accounts with quotes from themselves. Ever thought about that? Filling up their social media accounts with quotes from themselves Well, you know, while all the while humbling all over themselves in public. You know, John's heart was, and he said this, he must increase, and I must what? Decrease. But you know what? He didn't say that for a Twitter hashtag, or to be put on the gram, or so it could be sloganized. How different he is. From so many of the fame-seeking would-be prophets of Christ in our own age. His role was to herald and to point to Christ, to bear testimony to God's truth, specifically to witness to the great truth that Christ is the only Savior and light of the world, that He's the promised Messiah, that He is the Lamb of God. He was sent by God not to preach Himself. Not to build his own kingdom. Not to come up with pithy, cool phrases and hip, cool, you know, statements that people could monetize. He didn't come to establish his brand and chase fame and win for himself a following. He came to preach Christ. He didn't care about himself. He came to preach Christ so that through him, through his testimony, men and women might behold the glorious light of Christ and be saved. His greatest desire, his highest longing of his heart was not that he might be known, but that Christ would be known, renowned, loved, believed, and obeyed. That was it. His message was singular in focus. He wasn't always reinventing himself. John the Baptist was, man, he was just John the Baptist. And he preached the word faithfully. And the subject in the center of his message was Jesus Christ alone. Beloved, that's the calling of a faithful witness. That's the measure of a faithful ministry. Not, you know, so-and-so's ministry is so great. But that ministry exalts Christ above all. John was content to witness to the fact that the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. I want us to understand the weight of those words for a second. What do they mean exactly? When when, when John describes the Lord Jesus Christ as the true light, what does he mean by that? What he means by that is this. He's speaking in terms of what is real and genuine as opposed to what is false and phony what's clear and what is distinct, as opposed to what's vague and indistinct, what's pure and complete, as opposed to what is partial or mixed with error. John is saying that that Jesus is the only and the exclusively true light. So in this myriad, in the the myriad of, of false lights and false religions and false systems of belief and false philosophies and bankrupt human insights that Claim to lead to God and to life and to peace. That in reality, Jesus Christ is the only true light who can really lead us to God. Only Jesus can reveal to our hearts the realities and the truths about God. Show us the truth about ourselves. The truth about our rebelliousness and sin. Guide us out of the darkness of sin and shame and doubt and despair and the fear of death and hell. Jesus is the real and true way out of the spiritual darkness and out of the blindness and blackness of sin the only way for the sin-corrupted mind and heart to be truly cleansed and brought out of the unfruitful works and realm of darkness and into the glorious light of life in and with God, Jesus alone. It's not Jesus plus. Man, we live in a world of Jesus plus, don't we? Jesus plus this experience. Jesus plus this counseling. Jesus plus this philosophy. Jesus plus this. Jesus plus that. That is not what John, the Apostle John, says here at all. In the age of enlightenment and since that time, we have fallen into the delusion that Christ is not enough. That somehow, you know, you've got to supplement Jesus. You know, like you supplement your diet with vitamins. The Christ alone is not enough. Clearly here. Clearly here. John testifies to the exact opposite. He's enough. He's the true light. You need him. What you don't need are the falsified representations. You know why people in the American church have found Christ to not be enough? It's because the Christ they're following is not the Christ of Scripture. They find that Jesus isn't enough because the Jesus they believed in was somebody's version of Jesus and not the scriptural Christ. You know, I never see any of the apostles, I never see any of the disciples after, after, you know, the resurrection of Christ and after the, after the day of Pentecost when the Spirit of God comes to dwell in the people of God, I never see any of them, you know, wandering around in scripture looking for the missing piece. You know why? It's because they were filled to the fullness with the fullness of God in Christ, in the Spirit who dwelt within them. The reason people are not satisfied with Jesus is because they don't know the Christ of the Bible. Not only that, look at these words. He's the true light which gives light to everyone. How are we supposed to understand that? I take what John is saying. There's a lot of ink that's been spilt on this but but here's really what i take john to be saying here he's saying that christ that the light giving life of christ is the only one that's offered to mankind as the remedy for sin's darkness and and for sin's dominion the only remedy for our darkened hearts and the only solution that's offered for our salvation in other words he's saying this that that Jesus is that true light who gives light to all of mankind. And it's the idea that when Jesus came of his own accord into this world and he voluntarily left his exalted position in heaven with Father God to invade this darkened planet, that he embodied the ultimate light of God's self-revelation revelation, and that he sufficiently shines for all men. And what he does is, is he forces every human soul to make a decision about who he is. That's the idea. That Christ is the only true light that God has ever given to the world. The only true and complete and sufficient, right? Spoken to us many times, many, you know, in in the past, through the prophets. But now, this last time in his son. He's the true light that God has given to the world. And therefore, he's the light that's sufficient for every man. And as D.A. Carson says, the light of Christ shines on every man and thereby divides the race. So John describes the Lord Jesus as the only light of life, as the only source of salvation, as the one who comes into this darkened world to shine the light of his redemption upon those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, the one who came of his own will to rescue sinners. And then he describes for us The collective response of fallen, natural men and women. Great celebration. No. No. Instead, he describes for us a self-condemning response. He describes for us a self-condemning response. John tells us, verse 10, he was in the world. And the world was made through him. Right? I mean... He was in the world, a world that he made by his own power. Yet the world did not know him. I want you to think about that. I want us to think about this for a moment. The sad irony here that the world of men... Those whom he created and fashioned in the image of the triune God. Those to whom he gave life and breath, right? As Job says, Job 12 verse 10, in his hand is the life of everything, every living thing and the breath of all mankind. He came into the world of men to those whom he gave food, to those whom he upheld by the word of his power, And they did not recognize the one, the very one, who made them and who sustained their lives. If you want to understand the profound blindness of sin, here it is. Here it is. He was rejected by those whom he would have incinerated had he not veiled his eternal glory in human flesh. He was rejected by those whom he spoke into existence by his word. Those whom he sustains by his merciful common grace. By those who suppress the truth and did not honor him or give thanks to him, but who worshiped the creature rather than the creator. That's why they were blind. What a telling picture of the pervasive, corrupting nature of sin, of willful blindness and arrogance, the consequences of human depravity, the tragedy and the terrible wickedness of mankind steeped in sin. Now we would look at that, right? And and, and let us not be so arrogant as to propose that we would be any different. Because we're not. Remember what you were like before Christ found you and pried open your clenched eyes, your clenched shut eyes, and broke your heart of stone into pieces. And by the immense power of his grace made you to see the truth. I was no different than these men, these women described here. Were you? I I, I was blind to Christ's glory. I was blind to His worth. I was blind to Him as the greatest gift of God. And you know what? There are legions of people in this world that are still right there. Their sin has rendered them tragically blind and disinterested, though they claim otherwise. You know this. How ironic it is that so many will complain of what they see as God's indifference to human suffering and pain. God just doesn't care, right? If only God would intervene or do something miraculous, then perhaps I would be inclined to acknowledge and follow him. But you know what? That statement put to the test is proven to be a lie, isn't it? Isn't it? That statement put to the test is proven to be a lie by these very words in John. Because when by the greatest miracle of miracles, God became flesh and then dwelt among us and then worked miracles and then proved his love by giving up his life as a ransom for sin, not only was man indifferent, they were callously and violently dismissive and involved in his demise. The fact, I want us to think about this for a moment. The evidence of the eternal word who is God through whom all things were made, and without whom was not anything made that was made, was already in the world before his incarnation. His, the evidence of his existence was in the world before his incarnation, before his special coming into the world. How do I say that? Well, because we've read the book of Romans, haven't we? And what did Paul say? John tells us here that the world's general response to the incarnate word when he came into the world was in keeping with the world's general response throughout the previous ages and the general response of our own. J.C. Ryle put it like this. He said, Christ was in the world invisibly long before he was born of the Virgin Mary. He was there from the beginning, ruling, ordering, and governing the whole creation. By him, all things consisted. He gave to all life and breath, reigned from heaven in fruitful seasons. By him, kings reigned, and nations were increased or diminished. Yet men knew him not and honored him not. Can it get worse? Yeah, it actually can. What's worse, and even greater indignity to the eternal word is that as John tells us in verse 11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. That is meant to make us drop our jaw, okay? I want you to imagine for a second. Imagine if Donald Trump showed up at Trump Tower and nobody acknowledged his presence, You think that would ever happen? Do you? Do you? No. Donald Trump is imminently recognizable, right? With the old comb over and everything. And if he were not recognized, be certain you would hear about it on social media in a moment. But here's John telling us Christ came to his own people. His own land. His own people is the idea to a nation that had been prepared for centuries to recognize and to receive God's Son. And instead they rejected Him. How deep the darkness, right? He came to His own people, a people who should have been awaiting Him, a people to whom was given the law and the prophets, the promises, the prophecies, the wisdom of God through prophets and kings, a people who had experienced mighty acts of mercy and judgment such as no other nation on the earth under God had ever experienced. Moses said, Deuteronomy 4 verses 7 and 8, for what great nation is there that has a God so near as it, to it as is the Lord our God to us whenever we call upon him. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I've set before you today? They were a people to whom had been given the promise of the coming Messiah from their very own lineage. That the Messiah, the Savior of the world, would come from them and they would have nothing of Him when He came. And we look at this and the truth is The description of the world and the description of the Jewish nation, the the description of the rejection of the world, it indicts the entire human race, beloved, doesn't it? Blinded in sin, alienated from the life of God, and it shows just how desperately, doesn't it? How desperately we needed an incarnation and visitation from Christ. How desperately we needed the light of Christ to shine on our darkened souls if we would ever be rescued. Why? Because we're so bound by nature to sin and to eternal condemnation and to sorrow and blind by nature to the beauty and the glory of God. You know what else it does, though? It speaks to the infinite grace and mercy and condescension of the Lord Jesus Christ, doesn't it? Doesn't it? It speaks of the infinite condescension of the word. To come to a world of sinners. Look, Jesus wasn't surprised. He came to a world of sinners whom he knew would not recognize God in their midst. He knew it. What astonishing humility it is. I mean, keep it in mind, right? This is the word of God. This is God himself. This is the eternal word. What astonishing humility and grace For the Lord Jesus Christ to come from a place, come from a state, come from a heaven where there's nothing but perfect joy and perfect communion and perfect delight in the Godhead. A place of perfect love and holiness. A place of perfect fellowship and honor and satisfaction. From a place of glory and the worship of the holy angels to a place of utter rejection by ungrateful rebels in a foul atmosphere of wretchedness and sin in order to save some of those very sinners who openly rejected him. The contrast of verses 1 and 2 could not be any more stark or severe. And we have nothing with which to compare it. We really don't. None of us probably, has ever been in a place amongst a group of people where we were despised and rejected, hated, unrecognized, and vehemently opposed because of our goodness. Have we? And yet here's Christ. Here's Christ putting himself willingly in this atmosphere, this foul atmosphere of sin and rejection by the very ones whom he's come to save. The forbearance of Christ is beyond calculation. To redeem the elect sinners that the Father had given to Christ in the pactum salutis required more than a cheap grace. It required a great personal cost to our Lord. It was accomplished, our redemption, by the sovereign love and the condescending and selfless grace of the Word made flesh. It cost Him an incarnation. A life of sorrow and grief. A selfless pouring out of His life from Mary's womb to Joseph's tomb. There was never a moment... When Christ was not pouring himself out. A life of excruciating forbearance, as I mentioned. Of endurance in the face of resistance and accusation. A life of thankless devotion. Of misunderstanding and unbelief. Of opposition and indifference. The display of divine righteousness in the face of human evil. Evil. A sacrificial atoning death for the sake of hardened souls so that we might be made the children of God. There is not a costlier grace that has ever been revealed in human history. And yet, given the natural state of man, here's, here is how sinful sin is. Given the natural state of man, everything that Christ did would have been for naught. Except for the regenerating power of God. Except for the gracious work of the Holy Spirit. Praise God, the divine might of the Lord overcomes the darkness of the human soul with the power that cannot be resisted. The pactum salutis, the eternal covenant of redemption, cannot fail. What Christ has done for the elect of God will not be for naught. It can't be. And the new birth guarantees the divine plan of redemption cannot and will not fail because of our sin. I want you to think about this. If John were to stop right here with verse 11, it would seem that verse 5, look back at it. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Well, it sure seems like it has, doesn't it? If you stop right here at verse 11, it sure seems like the darkness has overcome the light. It would sure seem that the darkness has quenched the light, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? Man, look in our own society. Doesn't it seem like the darkness has quenched the light? Doesn't it seem that way? You look in our, in our world, the brutal crimes, the multiplied wickedness, the, the rampant sexual immorality, the indifference and self-absorption, the, the, the lust for power and the lust for riches, the bloodlust, the selfishness, the callousness, the abject godlessness, the self absorption and self-worship the perversion and wanton rebelliousness that consumes so many you look at it and you say "Man, I don't know what world John's looking at here but it sure seems to me like the darkness has overcome the light and if you think that it's because you're seeing with natural eyes and not the eyes of God it seems like The darkness has overcome the light, but oh, oh, how much magnificent doctrine in Scripture hinges on one little word. Three letters in English, two letters in Greek, a world of difference. How much hangs on that simple word, but, right? the light of the eternal word, the Lord Jesus Christ really has overcome the darkness and continues to extend his, his triumph over the darkness. And John tells us how, starting with that simple, small, yet powerful word. Look at it. John says, verses 12 and 13, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of the, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Amen is right. This is one of the most powerful, one of the most concentrated, one of the most pithy and significant statements of divine truth that's found anywhere in the Word of God, beloved, right here. John tells us, you know what? There are some who did and some who will receive the Lord Jesus Christ. There are some who did and who will. Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who are delivered from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the family of God. And how? What is it that makes the difference? What is it that is the difference between those who reject Jesus and those who receive and who believe in him and thereby are made the children of God? It's only one thing. And that one thing is this, the sovereign regenerating power of the living God. That's it. The power of God to raise a dead soul to life. The power of God to transform the heart of stone into a heart of flesh. That's the difference. It's the power of God to open sin-blinded eyes to behold the light that is Christ. The guarantee that the light will triumph over darkness is the new birth. It's regeneration. See, God's plan is perfect. God's plan leaves no contingencies undealt with, right? Regeneration. God making a sinner to be born again, born from above. You know what that is? That's God's ace in the hole. If you will. That's God's ace in the hole. Except God act. Here's the truth about all of us. We would all have remained in darkness. Isn't that true? Yeah, we say that, but do you believe it? You follow what I'm saying? Like we say, we, we admit a lot of things in scripture. We'll admit the truth of what Scripture says. The issue, though, is really, do we believe it? Do we really believe that apart from God, making our dead hearts alive and making our blinded eyes to see that we would remain forever in darkness, that we would forever be trapped in guilt and under the weight of sin and destined for eternal punishment and destruction? Do we really believe, do we really believe the only reason I believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord is because God changed my heart. Do we believe that? Because that's the wonder here. That's the wonder of of the truth, right? The divine remedy, like we saw in the pactum salutis, the divine remedy for our sin, as we saw in the pactum salutis, is this. God sends Jesus the Word into the world as the light of life to live for us in our place a perfect life, to lay down His life as an atonement for the sins of His elect, to bleed and die as the propitiation for our sins, to rise from the dead, and then, and then to make his people to be born again by his sovereign power so they see Christ as he is in all of his glory and receive him as Lord and believe, in upon, believe upon his name and become the children of God. Now listen, we got to get the grammar right here because it matters. Get the order here correct. Look at it with me again. I want you to look at it, right? But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name... He gave the right to become the children of God who were born. In other words, they received and they believed and God gave the, or Christ gave them the right then to become the children of God because they were born. They had been born. Something had happened to them. They were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but they were born by God. Make sure you get the order correct. It's that, you know, you know, the order is essential. Born of God, then we receive and believe in Christ, and then we receive from Christ the right to become the children of God. And that's not nitpicking. Some people say, well, that's just theological nitpicking. No, that's theological accuracy. That's accuracy. And it gives all the glory to God and none to man. Are Are you with me? Everybody who's saved. In time is saved in the exact same way. First, by the work of the Holy Spirit, God makes a dead and sensitive, darkened heart alive. The first made alive by God's sovereign intervention and regenerated by the Holy Spirit. You remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus, don't you? You remember this. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then Nicodemus was like, I don't even understand what you're talking about. Like, how can a guy, you know, climb to his mother's womb again and then be born again and blah, blah, blah. And he just demonstrated the fact that he really never understood Ezekiel 36. Jesus said that which is born of the flesh is flesh And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again born from above The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everybody who is born of the spirit There's no anticipating there's no predicting who's who god is going to make alive by the holy spirit and then believe in the lord jesus christ You can try you can try to make predictions I have tried to do that throughout my, you know, life as a pastor. I've sometimes like made guesses and I've been woefully wrong. And I have missed people like I had no clue. There's no way for us to know. But nobody makes themselves born again any more than you made yourself to be born the first time. How many of you made yourself to be born the first time? Raise your hand. Right? None of us did. It's beyond our human ability and power. And that new birth, that new birth, John says, is not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. What does he mean by that? Well, the first thing he means is this, is that this new birth, from darkness into light and from death into life, it's not about blood. In other words, becoming a child of God is not a matter of your bloodline. The Jews thought that. It's not. It's not a matter of your family lineage and your legacy. It's not a matter of your biological pedigree. Our father is Abraham. If Abraham were your father, you would know me. Right? Isn't that what Jesus said? It's not a matter of lineage and legacy, your biological pedigree. Your parents may have built a church. Your father, your grandfather, your great-grandfather may have been preachers. Your cousin might be a missionary. Your mom or your dad might have been a faithful believer in Jesus. That does not save you. Salvation does not run in the family. It's not a trait like, you know, hair color and eye color. It's not in your DNA. Right? Becoming a child of God is not a matter of the will of flesh. That is, it's not a matter of the things that make for distinctions among men. Look, the new birth is not a matter of your intelligence, whether it's real or imagined. Right? It's not. It's not a matter of your education or your social position. It's not a matter of your wealth, your physical beauty, your physical prowess. Your power can I tell you what those things matter absolutely zip not a nothing in the eternal scheme of things nothing In fact, all those things go away. Don't they don't they? They don't matter And the new birth is not a matter of the will of man That is it's not a matter of man-made religion of ritual of of morality of pull yourself up by your bootstraps Like that's not what christianity is about turning over a new leaf diligently performing acts of charity Diligently, you know, performing the rituals that are prescribed. Nobody can make themselves to be raised from spiritual deadness by a sheer force of will, no matter how stubborn you are. Nature can't change itself. Fallen man can't make himself spiritually alive. New birth is a work of God. And God does raise his own from the dead. And he has mercy on whom he has mercy and compassion on whom he has compassion. Compassion. And the immediate evidence that someone who's been raised from the dead by the living God is this, is that when confronted with the truth of the gospel, when confronted with the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ, he receives and he believes in Christ. And what John is saying here, man, it's, it's more than we sometimes think it means. That word for receives a word in the Greek lambano. It means to lay hold of somebody. It means to seize hold of. To hold somebody to yourself, right? It is the idea of welcoming Christ for all that he is. For who and what he is in all of his fullness. That you don't pick and choose. You don't take Christ piecemeal. You take him as He is, he comes as prophet, speaking to you the word of God, and you receive those words as the truth. He comes to you as priest, as the one who has has offered himself as the atoning sacrifice that's sufficient, the only atoning sacrifice that's sufficient for your guilt, and you receive him as such. He comes to you as king, and you welcome his rule. He comes to you. As Savior and you welcome Him with repentance and faith. He comes to you as Sovereign Lord and you receive and submit to His authority and His commands. He comes to you as Shepherd and you follow His lead and you accept His provision and you embrace His protection. There's a lot more that I could say, but you get the point. You take Christ as He is. And then you believe in His name. In fact, you believe and you keep on believing is the idea here. It's a word that means to entrust yourself personally and completely with full confidence and total commitment to someone. You might be sitting there and saying, yeah, I know that, but you need to hear it again. Just like I've sat down with husbands and wives whose relationships are not what they wished it would be at this stage in their marriage. And I speak to them about the vows that they once made to one another that they've forgotten You might say, I know what it means to believe in Jesus. But there's more to knowing what it means to believe in Jesus and actually believing in Christ. You need to be reminded what this means. It's not just assenting to a certain set of facts about Christ. It's not just, you know, even confessing those facts are true. It's a matter of believing in the Lord Jesus Christ personally. Personal trust, personal surrender, personal conviction about The Lord Jesus Christ. You know what it really comes down to? It's this. It's it's the cry of the human heart really. That says you know what? I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. Who came to this earth to save me. Because I'm a sinner. And I was arrayed and against and an enemy. Of the holy God. That he lived for me the life of perfect righteousness. That I could never live. And I can't live now. That he bore the guilt. In the shame of my sins for me in my place. That he died for me. That he suffered God's wrath. That was reserved for me. He bore. He rose to the dead on the third day. He defeated sin and death for me. He purchased me for his own possession. He's the Lord of everything. And he's Lord over me. And he commands my life. And I've been bought with a price. And I'm no longer my own. I'm his. And every day demands my repentance and my faith in him grow. He is actively at work in me for my spiritual good. He is actively at work to deliver me out of the bondage of my daily sins. He's all my portion. He's all my strength. He's my sustainer and he's my life. He will increasingly fashion me into his image. And in pleasing him, I'll find my greatest joy. I desire in everything to be guided by him, to submit myself to his absolute authority, to his gracious love. He'll forgive me when I sin. He keeps me when I fail. He will come for me on that last day. He will take me to heaven with himself, not because of the works of my hand, not because of anything in me that's praiseworthy, not because of my merit, because I don't have any. In and of myself, I am nothing. Nothing. I'm a wretched sinner. I am dust. But only because of his great love with which he has loved me and saved me, I am redeemed. Beloved, it's got to be personal. It's got to be personal. It's got to be Christ is my Savior. He's my Lord. He's my King. Martin Luther is the one that's been credited with this. I don't know if he said it first or not, but he said the Christian life consists of possessive pronouns. It's one thing to say Christ is a Savior. It's another thing, quite another to say He is my Savior. And when we receive and we believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, He and He alone grants us the right to become the children of God. And I want us to make sure we understand this. We... We we think about all the rights that we've been given in our world, how you know we demand our rights all the time. That's not what this word that's translated as right means here at all. What it means is that he grants us, he confers on us the permission, the freedom, the awesome privilege of becoming the children of God. That's the idea here. What an immense blessing it is to go from being a rebel and a God-hater and be made the children of God, right? We've seen it throughout Romans 8, right? The, the glory and the wonder of what it means to be a child of God. But in order to really appreciate being a child of God, we got to remember that we were once children of Satan. Under the sway of the prince of the power of the air. And by nature, children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. That's what we were. And the only thing that can make us, the only one who can make us what we are is Christ. But to do it required humility and grace beyond our ability to even comprehend. What would we have done? You ever think about this? What would we have done had not the eternal word of God, our Lord and Jesus Savior Jesus Christ, had he not become what he was not, a man So that we could be made what we were not, the children of God. All of our salvation is summed up in him alone, isn't it? That's what John's pressing on. That's what he wants us to see here. You want to understand how important the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ is? Without that, you are hopeless and you are helpless. You are without God in this world and in the world to come. John Calvin wrote, when we see salvation whole, look at it in the big picture. It's every part is found in Christ. And so we must beware lest we derive the smallest drop of salvation from somewhere else. For if we seek salvation, the very name of Jesus teaches us that he alone possesses it. If other spirit-given gifts are sought, in his anointing they're found. Strength in his reign and purity in his conception and tenderness expressed in his nativity in which in all respects he was like us that he might learn to feel our pain. Redemption, when we seek it, is in his passion found. Acquittal, in his condemnation, lies. And freedom from the curse in his own cross is given. If satisfaction for our sins we seek, we'll find it in his sacrifice and cleansing in his blood. If reconciliation now we need, for this he endured Hades. To overcome our sins, we need to know that in his tomb they are laid. The newness, the newness of our life, his resurrection brings and immortality as well also comes with that gift. And if we also long to find inheritance in heaven's reign, his entry there secures it now with our protection, safety and blessings that abound. All flowing to us from his royal throne. The sum of all is this. For those who seek this treasure trove of blessings of all kinds, in no one else can they be found than in him. For all are given in Christ alone. What do we do with this text? It's really very simple. The question that's posed by these glorious words is very simple, but it's the most important question in the entire world. Have you received Jesus and believed in his name? Have you received Jesus and believed in his name and so become a child of the living God? It is impossible for me to overstate how important those words, that question is. Life or death, heaven or hell, blessing or cursing, they all rest on your answer. They all turn on your answer to that question. Have you received Jesus and believed in his name? Not are you a churchgoer. Not, have you grown up in a Christian family? Not, have you given your tithes and your offerings today? Not, have you sang, are you a singer? Not, are you a hearer of the word? Have you received Jesus and believed in his name? Personally and completely, with full confidence and total commitment. J.C. Ryle again said, nothing is so provoking to and offensive to God as those who refuse the glorious salvation he has provided at so mighty a cost by the death of his only begotten son and nothing is so suicidal on the part of man as to turn away from the only remedy that can heal his soul. True. And then, for those of us who are in Christ, well, we need to spend some time considering just how great is God's love to us, that Christ would come to shine the light of salvation into the darkness of our souls. We need to remember afresh and anew where we were and what we were when Christ found us. You know, here's what I find in myself. When I don't really think about what I once was before Christ, when I don't spend time, because you know you don't want to think about those things, right? I don't want to remember those things, but we need to. We need to remember what we were before Christ. The very real sinfulness and guilt and the darkness of my heart apart from Christ. When I don't feel it as real, when I don't think about it, what happens is this, is that the love of God in Christ, the light of Jesus, what Christ has done scarcely moves my soul as it should at all. Man, you're a preacher, right? And I can get enthralled with theology. And forget the Christ of the word. If I don't feel it. If I don't think about how Christ redeemed me. The sweetness and the joy of redemption doesn't fill my life like it ought to. The infinite miracle of the new life becomes commonplace. In fact, here's what happens. The good news, right? Just becomes news. You know what I'm talking about? The good news becomes just news. Just news. Just news. And the intensity of joy is cooled and the heart spring of love is dried up and the wonder of the light of Christ piercing the darkness of my soul fades. Beloved, I don't want that. I trust you don't either. And so I'm praying that God will fill our hearts with the joy that comes from really understanding the depth and the breadth and the power and the truth of Christ's love for us, the wonder of his coming for us. Everything that he's done for us all that he is for us. All the promises that he's made to us and that they would move us to make his glorious salvation known and to testify to Christ and to make much of Christ that others might hear the gospel and believe. If you've really received and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, that is not something you can keep to yourself. It's not something that you can swallow down and keep hidden. How I pray for us. Not only would we read these wonderful words from John, but we would marvel in the truth. And not just marvel in theology, but marvel in Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are so faithful, Lord God, to provide for us this holy, Word, this glorious word, this truth that is revealed to us in the prologue of John. To lift our eyes, Lord God, to the glory of eternity, time before ages when time didn't exist. To behold the glory of Christ as the word of God. Face to face, prostontheon with God. Enjoying divine Fellowship, perfect communion, perfect love, perfect joy, and then that he, that Lord Jesus, you would take to yourself human flesh, and descend into a world that you knew would reject you, would refuse to recognize you, would refuse to honor you, even your own people, even your own people. So that you might rescue and save the very ones who scorned and mocked and scoffed at you. Not just then, but throughout the ages and even now. Us in this room who know Christ. I thank you, Lord God, for a salvation that is rich and wonderful and glorious and worthy of contemplation. And that should bring forth in us great worship. I pray, Lord God, for those that are in this room today who know Christ as Savior and Lord. And Father, they would reflect upon the immensity of the grace of Christ and they would wonder at Jesus. Wonder in awe at the Christ who would save them. And then, Father, for those who are here that are still Strangers to the grace of God in Christ, I pray, Lord, that you would bring them face to face with their own blindness, with their own darkness, with their own, you know, you know, position that they're in of condemnation. And Lord God, that you would turn them to Christ, who alone has provided the perfect sacrifice for all who will receive and believe in. I pray you move in might during this time and turn the hearts of everyone in this room to you. Pray it, Lord God, in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.